Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode three of The Fall of Constantinople and the title of this episode is Timur the Lame. In the last episode we heard about the origins of the Ottoman Empire as an obscure Turkish emirate in western Anatolia that grew in power after the Seljuk Turks were effectively destroyed by the Mongols in the 1240s. The Ottomans also did something that the Seljuks never succeeded in doing which was to cross over the Bosphorus into Europe and start to settle a Turkish population in Thrace. This proved to be very successful and soon the Ottomans had a power base in both the eastern Balkans and western Anatolia. And although you really need a map to see this, one very relevant point was that this area was exactly the heartland of the later Byzantine Empire. So the Ottomans were really supplanting the Byzantines. And of course it wasn't long before they turned their attention to capture in Constantinople, thereby finally eliminating the Byzantines and establishing their own empire with its capital at Constantinople in a way that strangely mirrored the geographic boundaries of the original Byzantine Empire. Indeed, it is one of the fascinating things about the rise of the Ottomans that they saw themselves as not just the champions of Islam, but also as the inheritors of the Byzantine Empire, which, if you think about it, was a very strange combination, given that Byzantium, as we call it, was really the last remnant of the Roman Empire that had established Christianity as its state religion. And I think this is one of the reasons why modern Turkey has always occupied an unusual position amongst Islamic countries in thinking of itself as quasi-European, and in modern times even going so far as applying for membership of the European Union. Now, so far in this series, we've been looking at the rise of the Ottomans and the decline of the Byzantines. But in the late 14th century, suddenly out of nowhere, everything changed. For out of the blue came another great ruler from the Asiatic steppelands. Very similar in many ways to the legendary Mongol ruler Genghis Khan. His name was Timur, and he was called Tamerlane in Europe, which is short for Timur the Lame, since he was lame, allegedly after being shot with an arrow as a boy when he was stealing sheep. But in this podcast, we'll use his real name and call him Timur. Ethnically, he was of mixed Turkish and Mongol descent and born in Transoxiana, which is today modern Uzbekistan. And like Genghis Khan, he quickly established a huge empire in Central Asia that would have a big impact on the Islamic world and come very close to destroying the Ottomans. So let's dive straight into this story. As before, I'll read from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful book on the fall of Constantinople. Hope you enjoy it. In the early 14th century, the Ottomans, under their first great leader, Osman, established themselves as a force to be reckoned with. Under his son, Orhan, they made rapid progress, extending their territory on both sides of the Bosphorus. It was not only for his conquests that Orhan was a great ruler. With his vizier's help, he gave a solid organisation to his state without destroying the Ghazi quality which provided its impetus. He encouraged urban development 
developments, making use of the Akis, who were guilds of artisans and merchants. He countered the somewhat disruptive influence of the dervishes by inviting the cooperation of the ulema, who were the official guardians of the Muslim faith and its traditions. Their teaching ensured proper treatment for his increasing number of Christian subjects. If a town or district had resisted him and was taken by force of arms, the Christians had no rights. One-fifth of the population might be enslaved, the men sent to work on the conqueror's lands and the boys trained for the army. If they had capitulated, they were allowed to retain their churches and their customs. Many Christians preferred his rule to that of the Byzantine emperor because his taxation was less exorbitant. Though some of them adopted Islam from a natural desire to join the ruling classes, there was no forcible conversion. The ulemas furthermore built madresses or mosque schools in every city to which they came and were thus able to provide the sultan with an educated elite to form his civil service. At the same time, the army was reorganised. Hitherto, it had consisted almost entirely of light cavalry drawn from tribes that were still basically nomadic. Now it was replanned into two main sections. There was a regular militia composed of men who were allotted land by the Sultan and paid for it with a small money rent and the obligation to do military service whenever required. Such a fief, which was hereditary, was known as a timar. Larger or more valuable fiefs known as ziemet involved a bigger rent and the tenant held a higher position in the army with greater obligations to provide his equipment. The richest of these ziams became a pasha or a sanjak bey or even a baila bey with administrative duties and higher military powers and obligations. Side by side with this locally based militia there was a paid army. The janissaries who served for life and were later to form the sultan's guard were at this time an infantry regiment composed of Christian or ex-Christian slaves. The main force in Orhan's day was known loosely as the Sipahis. They provided the gunners, the armourers, the smiths and the marines. Many of them had been allotted lands and were liable for military service at any time, but they were paid for it and were usually hired only for a single campaign. With the Sipahis were the Piade, the infantry. The name was later reserved for those that held lands, the others being called the Azabs, who came to be associated with the Bashi Bazooks, irregulars who served for whatever loot and plunder they could obtain, as did the Akibi, a light cavalry spearhead. Orhan insisted on a distinctive uniform for each section of his army. He also set up efficient means for mobilisation so that he could at any time gather together a large and well-trained force at the shortest notice. His successor, Murad I, took full advantage of this fine fighting force. Murad's mother was a Greek known to the Turks as Nilufa, the water lily, the daughter of an acritic chieftain. His elder full brother, Suleiman, had died a few months before Orhan. There was an older half-brother, Ibrahim, whom Murad promptly put to death. During the first years of his reign, Murad was engaged on his Asiatic frontier, where rival emirs were making trouble and had to be repressed. Some of the towns conquered in Thrace were reoccupied by the Byzantines, though the Turks could not be driven out of the countryside. When Murad returned to Europe in 1365, he had no difficulty 
in recovering them and in establishing his European capital at Adrianople. Constantinople and its surroundings were now isolated except by the sea. Its Asiatic suburbs were already in Turkish hands. It was now that Europe began to realise the menace presented by the Ottoman Turks. Venice and Genoa, both worried about their colonies and their trade, began to explore possibilities for a general alliance against the infidel, but nothing came of their attempts. The Byzantine emperor, John V, journeyed to Italy to tell of the dangers that threatened and to try to hire Western mercenaries for whom he could not pay. On his return, he was forced in 1373 to recognise the Ottoman sultan as his overlord, promising him a yearly tribute and military aid whenever required, and his son Manuel went as a hostage to Murad's court. John was a loyal vassal. He was rewarded when, in 1374, his eldest son Andronicus plotted with Murad's son Sanji against their two fathers. It was Murad whose troops repressed the rebellion. When Andronicus revolted again, holding Constantinople from 1376-79, Though the West was now seriously worried, abortively planning crusades, the only government to keep up a constant attack on the Turks was the Order of the Hospital at Rhodes. But its chief enemy was the Emir of Aydin, and any curtailment of his power was to the advantage of his rival, the Ottoman Sultan. Murad was thus free to advance into the Balkans. Hordes of Turks from all over Anatolia were now pouring into Thrace with their families and often with their flocks. The urge to expand continued. Serbia was still the chief power in the peninsula, though it had been divided into two after Dushan's death in 1355. In 1389, Murad led an army against the Serbs to meet their king, Lazar, on the plain of Kosovo. But early in the morning of 15th June, as the Sultan was dressing, a Serbian deserter was introduced into his tent, promising him information about the Christian positions. He approached the Sultan and suddenly leant forward and stabbed him in the heart. He himself was promptly slain, and his sacrifice was useless, for the sultan's two sons were with the army. The elder, Bayezid, at once took command, suppressing the news of his father's death until the battle was over. The Turks fought with perfect discipline, unlike the Christians who, when their first forceful attack could not be sustained, began to waver while whispers of treachery spread through their ranks. By nightfall, the Turkish victory was complete. The Serbian king Lazar was taken prisoner and was brutally executed in the tent where the Sultan Murad had died. Bayezid now proclaimed himself Sultan and gave orders that his brother should be immediately strangled. There was to be no question of dividing his rule. In the 30 years of his reign, Murad I, by making brilliant use of his army and organization, 
generation bequeathed to him by his father, had transformed a Ghazi emirate into the strongest military power in southeastern Europe. His own character was symbolic of the changed nature of his state. Unlike his father and his grandfather, he was fond of pomp and ceremony. He saw himself as an emperor. He was stern, even cruel, with a touch of cynicism, inherited perhaps from his Greek ancestors. But he could be generous, and he was always just and a stickler for discipline. Bayezid, his heir, shared his father's taste for pomp, but he was more self-indulgent and hotter-tempered, ungenerous to others, and less successful as a disciplinarian. His swift reaction earned him the nickname of Yildirim, the Thunderbolt, but he was not a great commander. His reign, however, began brilliantly. The victory at Kosovo gave him complete mastery of the Balkans. It seemed likely that in a few years he would absorb the whole peninsula, including those areas in Greece and Albania which the Turks had not occupied. The Serbian king Lazar's son Stephen succeeded to the Serbian throne but with the modest title of despot and as a vassal of the Ottoman sultan to whom he gave his sister Maria in marriage. The Bulgarian kingdom of Tirnovo was extinguished in 1393. A Turkish army invaded the Greek Peloponnese in 1394 reducing the local princes to vassaldom. In 1390 Bayezid planned to capture Constantinople itself, but as he marched up to the city walls, news reached him of the crusade organised by King Sigismund of Hungary and knights from all over the west. He turned and hurried north, justifying his name of Thunderbolt and fell upon the western army at Nicopolis. The folly of the westerners helped him to win an overwhelming victory, which enabled him then to annex the remaining Bulgarian kingdom of Vidin and to reduce the the power of Wallachia across the Danube. Having established his authority along the Danube frontier, he returned towards Constantinople but did not venture again to attack it, apparently because he'd heard rumours that an armada was being fitted out by the Italian maritime powers. Instead, he tried vainly to turn the co-Byzantine emperor John VII against his uncle Manuel II, with whom, in contrast to the usual Byzantine practice, he was sharing the throne in perfect friendship. The only Western help that actually arrived at Byzantium was the handful of troops brought by Marshal Busico from France. They remained for a year in Constantinople with no achievements to their credit. When they were gone, Bayezid, seeing how feeble were the Western efforts to provide aid, was ready to make another attempt against the imperial city. In the spring of 1402, he sent a haughty message to the Byzantine emperor, bidding him to surrender Constantinople. However, Manuel II was still touring Western Europe and it was his co-emperor, John VII, who replied to the Sultan's envoys with pious courage, telling them, Tell your master that we are weak, but that we trust in God, who can make us strong and can put down the mightiest from their seats. Let your master do as he pleases. 
John's trust in God was the more confident because of news that was coming through from the east of a great new power that could confront the Ottomans. This was the empire of Timur. Timur, also known as Tamerlane, was in fact a Turk, but descended in the female line from the great Mongol clan of Genghis Khan. He was born at Kesh in Turkestan in 1336. By the end of the 14th century, he had built up an empire that stretched from the borders of China and the Bay of Bengal to the Mediterranean Sea. In the brilliance of his military exploits, he resembled Genghis Khan himself, and he resembled him too in his ruthless savagery, but he lacked the ability to organise his conquests that the Mongol Khans had shown. His death was to cause the disruption of his realm, but while he lived, he was a fierce and formidable enemy. Though he was a pious Muslim, there was nothing of the Ghazi about him. He fought purely for his own aggrandizement, not for the Muslim faith. Indeed, the chief victims of his massacres were Muslims. He had long resented the existence of the Ottoman Sultanate, partly from jealousy that there should be any other Turkish power, and partly because he feared that it might endanger his own control of his western provinces. Already in 1386, he had advanced into eastern Anatolia and defeated an Ottoman army sent by the Anatolian emirs at Erzinjan. He had then retired, but threatened to return. Eight years later, Bayezid himself went to Ezinjan to see to the defences of the peninsula. But in 1395, Timur appeared again and broke through to Sivas, massacring the population, including a son of Bayezid's who had been governing the province. To Bayezid's relief, Timur's army then moved eastward to sack Aleppo in Syria, as well as Damascus and Baghdad. But the Ottoman Sultan's troubles were not ended. Timur was in closer touch with his enemies than he realised when the Ottoman forces were assembled before the walls of Constantinople. Envoys from Timur arrived at the camp with a stern command that Bayezid should return to the Byzantine emperor all the land that he had stolen from him. Bayezid replied in terms of gross insult. He then raised the siege of Constantinople and transported his army to Anatolia. Timur's army had already reached Sivas. The decisive battle took place at Ankara on the 25th of July 1402. By his arrogance, Bayezid let himself be put at a tactical disadvantage, while his soldiers were undisciplined and resentful of his part. When Timur's vast force, strengthened by an elephant corps from India, launched a fierce attack, the Ottoman forces broke and fled, leaving Bayezid and his second son Musa captive in Timur's hands. The only regiment to stand its ground was in fact a Serbian contingent led by the despot Stephen. He was able to rescue the Sultan's eldest son, Suleiman, and one of Suleiman's brothers. A fourth brother, Mustafa disappeared during the battle. The survivors fled to the safety of the Ottoman castle of Anadolu Hisar, while Timur marched triumphantly through western Anatolia, sacking its cities, including the old Ottoman capital of Bruza, where the ladies of the Sultan's harem fell into his hands. He carried the captive Sultan Bayezid with him in a litter, which later legend transformed into a golden cage. 
Bayezid was in fact treated with courtesy and when he died, probably by his own hand in March 1403, his son Musa was freed and allowed to convey the corpse to the family mausoleum at Brusa. Timur himself left Anatolia later that year and returned to his chief capital, Samarkand, where he died in 1405, age 72, while making plans for the conquest of China. This was the moment when, had the powers of Europe been able and willing to come swiftly together in a great coalition, the Ottoman threat to Christendom might have been broken forever. But the European kings did nothing, and Timur's intervention had indeed added to the Ottoman strength, for Turkish families and even whole tribes fled before his armies to the safety of the European provinces. The Genoese indeed made a handsome profit out of ferrying the Turks to Europe. In about 1410, so the Byzantine historian Ducas believed, there were more Turks in Europe than in Anatolia. Moreover, Bayezid had left large armed forces there to guard the frontiers and police the provinces. The Ottoman dynasty had been humiliated by Timur at Ankara and its military machine had been weakened, but it had not been destroyed. And the threat to Byzantium and Europe was as great as it had ever been. And that ends this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, as usual, I'd be delighted if you wanted to subscribe to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll turn back to the Byzantines as they look out from the walls of Constantinople to see the ever-growing power of the Ottomans. See you then. (laughs) ¶¶